All right, welcome to another episode of the Light Bulb Factory, conversation centered on the church becoming the light of the world. This episode is a recording from our college worship gathering. If you are a college student in Waco, we'd love to have you join us any Sunday at 2 p.m. in the Sanctuary of First Baptist Church, Waco, where we learn about the way of Jesus together and discern what it looks like to live it out as a community. What's something that you can't do, but you wish you could? So over the past week, Rachel and I started watching this new show together uh, called The World's Toughest Race. I don't know if you've seen this before, but it's now available on Amazon Prime. And uh, The World's Toughest Race is really interesting because it's, uh, it's, it's uh, called Adventure Racing, or some people will call it Eco Challenge. And basically in this show, you, there are 66 different teams that are competing, a team of four, and uh, they go to the island of Fiji, and they have to uh, travel over 671 kilometers. And I'm an American, so I have no idea what that translates to in miles, but I'll pretend like it sounds like a lot. So uh, 671 kilometers in 11 days' time. And it's a combination of rowing and hiking through a jungle with a machete and uh, you know, uh, mountain biking and everything else. It's an incredibly arduous uh, sort of race. Uh, you sleep very little, even if at all, over this 11-day uh, span of time. And, um, and so, for me, that's definitely something that I, I can't do, but I, but I wish I could. Uh, absolutely. And, and it's interesting, because as part of this show, uh, you, you, know, you, you hear some interviews from the people that are contestants, like, like many shows. And uh, as people talk about what, why they're here and why they want to do this race, a number of different people talk about how uh, they want to inspire other people who may be uh, home on the couch like me, um, that they can do this too if they put their mind to it, if they believe in themselves that they could be out here traveling through the mountains of Fiji as well. Um, and this, this sort of narrative that we hear a lot of times uh, today about if you believe in yourself, you can do anything, um, it raises some questions about how people change, okay? And this is not fundamentally a religious question. It's actually more of a psychological question at the core, okay? How do people change? How do you go from the couch uh, to how, hiking through the mountains of Fiji. And it's interesting that a lot of times the, the cultural answer today is, well, you just have to believe in yourself. You have to believe that anything you put your mind to do, you can do. And in this particular example, that's a little complicated because I, I can promise you, no matter how much I believe in myself, if I show up in Fiji tomorrow, there's no way I'm like gonna hike 30 miles and then go row another 50 and turn out okay. Like, it doesn't matter how hard I believe. Instead, what I'm going to have to do is I'm going to have to train. I'm going to have to practice. That it's not mind over matter, as we're often told. In this case, it would have to start, at least, with, with matter over mind. But have to go out to uh, the marina tomorrow over at Baylor and, and rent a kayak, you know, and start from ground one and just start, start practicing and getting good at the motion. And then I'd have to go rent a mountain bike and go over to Cameron Park and start to, to ride around and see if I can take it. And over time, hopefully I'd develop some skills and I would start to gain some confidence in myself. And then at some point along the way, the mind over matter does kick in. That whatever the next obstacle was that I'd be worried about, maybe I can't you know, go through uh, the jungle with a machete and knock stuff down. I, at that point, I could be like, well, you know, I've overcome all of these obstacles up to this point. I bet I could figure out that too. I, I've begun to believe in myself. Because you see, believing in yourself is not a great starting point, at least in situations like this, you have to actually practice. And then once you start to practice, you gain momentum, and then you start to believe in yourself. And so it's not 
just mind over matter, and it's not really just matter over mind either. They work together in conjunction with one another, but it usually has to start with matter over mind. And so today we're going to talk about some of these questions of how do people change? How do you go from the couch to the jungles of Fiji? Or how do you go from being an angry person to being a person of peace? How do you go from being someone whose life is ravaged by lust to someone who respects and honors the dignity of another person? That this is what Jesus wants to teach us in the Sermon on the Mount. And the idea that I want you to kind of hang on to as we go through this passage today is that Jesus plans to change us from the outside in, then the inside out. Usually there's so much talk about God changed me from the inside out, and and God wants to transform us that way, but oftentimes it starts from the outside in, that Jesus gives us a way of life that we follow, and then our insides begin to change along the way. This will make more sense as we go along. Um, The past few weeks we've been doing this series um, on the Sermon on the Mount called the Upside Down Church, Um, but over the past couple weeks we've been talking about these opening parts of Matthew chapter 5. And what we've been saying so far is that Jesus' main point is this, is that that God is is launching a new project on earth called the kingdom of heaven, okay? And that this kingdom of heaven is featuring an upside-down community called the church, pursuing an upside-down way of life based on Jesus. And so we've read the Beatitudes together. We've learned that Jesus blesses the most unlikely people that none of us would call blessed, We've read how how Jesus wants to change the world, not through power, but actually through the presence of his people, that they exist as salt and as light in the world. And now we come to verse 17, and this is the passage that Mary Liz read for us just moments ago. And what I want you to see as we start out today is I want you to see how the structure of the Sermon on the Mount, of how this all fits together, okay? Because starting in verse 17 is a big section that stretches all the way to the end of chapter 5, all the way to the end of verse 48. If you have a Bible out with you on your phone or in paper, you can kind of look at this in person and see physically what it looks like. That 17 through 48 are a big, long section. And here's kind of how this structure works, okay? Is that, first of all, um, in verses 17 through 20, the verses that we read just a moment ago, uh, Jesus makes two surprising claims, I'll come back in a minute and tell you what those are. But then in verses 21 through 48, he's going to demonstrate why those claims are true through a series of six examples. And each time you see one of those six examples, there's a a phrase that starts it out. It's always something to the effect of Jesus saying, you have heard it said, okay, but now I say to you. And there's six of these. The first one, you've heard it said, you shall not murder but now I say to you, whoever's angry with a brother or sister has already, has already come to judgment. Number two, you have heard it was said, you should not commit adultery. But now I say to you, anyone who looks lustfully has already committed adultery in their heart. Number three, you have heard it said that anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces for any reason except sexual immorality makes the wife the victim of adultery. Number four, Jesus says, uh, you have heard it said, do not break your oath, but fulfill the vows you have made. But I say to you, do not swear an oath at all. And number five, you have heard it said, uh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. And number six, you have heard it said, love your enemy, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, hate your enemy 
and pray for those who persecute you. There's these six statements where Jesus says, this is what you've heard, but this is what I say. Today we're going to focus on number one and two, adultery, uh, on anger and adultery. Uh, we're going to let three and four go for now, and in future weeks we're going to get to number five and number six as well. And these are some challenging statements to interpret of what Jesus is actually trying to get to. So we're going to go through this slowly and try to figure out what he's trying to say. And let's start with these, what I called surprising claims from uh, verses 17 and 20. So here we go. The two claims that Jesus makes that might be surprising to us are, first of all, he says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And then number two, he says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, then you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Both of these kind of rub up against the way that we're, we're raised in church most of the time and the things that we're taught to believe. And it's really important that we understand what Jesus is saying here because we won't understand those six statements, those examples after, unless we get these two statements. Now, let's talk about why these uh, two are, are difficult to understand. Uh, first of all, um, the, let's go with number one. I have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. This is surprising to us because oftentimes, at least the way I was raised in church, we hear that the Old Testament was this series of like legalistic rules for us to follow. It's a way that we gain works-based righteousness, that we have to follow the rules, and then we will have right standing before God. And then we're told that Jesus comes along, and instead of being about rules, that he's about grace and forgiveness. And so he throws out the Old Testament law, and he gives us something new and completely different. And he says, it's not about following rules anymore. It's about a relationship with me. So forget all of that, scrap it, and I'm here to give you something new. And the challenge that we see here is we go, wait, if, if, that's, if that's how it works, then, then why does Jesus tell us that he came not to abolish the law, which is the very thing that we usually think that he came to do, right? To throw it out and give us something new. Why does he say that he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law? That's the first question that we should have. Um, and so today we're going to talk about how Jesus came with something new, right? But there's actually an asterisk on new. So here's the statement we said earlier, that, that God is launching a new project on earth called the kingdom of heaven. We're going to talk about there's an asterisk on that new. Yeah, it's, it's new, kind of, but it's actually a continuation of what God has been doing the whole time. And so typically when we think about Old Testament is, is works righteousness and Jesus is being saved by faith, that we're trying to make a discontinuity between the Old and two New Testament and say they're very different in how they work. And Jesus is going to challenge to see a thread of continuity between them, that there's actually something that's being fulfilled from the old, not just scrapping uh, the old instead. Uh, and the second thing that we find surprising in this passage is this idea that unless our righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's confusing to us because, first of all, we say, wait a second, I thought that salvation was by grace through faith and not by works and kind of accumulating our righteousness. And so the way that sometimes we get around this creatively is we say, well, the, the Pharisees, okay, they were the teachers of the law. They followed all the rules perfectly, but they thought that they were justifying themselves by following those rules. But they really weren't, because no one's perfect. And so the way around it is to say that the way we can have a greater righteousness than the Pharisees but is by realizing that we are not righteous before God, by receiving his righteousness that he gives to us on his behalf, and then all of a sudden, voila, we have a greater righteousness than the Pharisees. But 
We're going to see that that's not exactly what Jesus means in this passage today either. So these are two confusing and surprising claims that we have to uh, wrap up. So uh, let's just jump into the first example about murder, and I think this will start to become clear about how all this fits together. So here is the, what Jesus says to us about murder. He says, um, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. So here's how we, we tend to interpret this most of the time. And I'll admit that even this week, studying this passage, I had some paradigm shifts in how I'm learning to interpret this passage and see it more faithfully in terms, in terms of those surprising claims. Um, so here's how we tend to, to interpret this, is we make a dichotomy between the law and between Jesus, right? And so we see those two statements that it says, you have heard that it was said, and Jesus comes around and he says, and now I say to you. And so uh, the law says, don't murder, but Jesus says, no, don't be angry. Jesus is throwing out the old law, and he's replacing it with the new law. But I want to suggest to you today that that's actually not Jesus' solution. It's to tell us not to be angry. That the solution is going to come in the next verse. We'll get there in a minute. And so we need a different framework instead. There's three problems with this kind of law versus Jesus way of reading the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and so the first one is this. Is that Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, right? That's what we've been talking about. If Jesus... If it's the law versus Jesus, and he's throwing out the law, and he's giving us the new thing, then it sure sounds like Jesus has come to abolish the law. So what's up with that? There's a tension there, right? Um, the second thing is this. Jesus got angry. I mean, read the Bible. You hear about uh, Jesus flipping tables in the temple, being really upset about people not taking um, the house of the Lord seriously. And so what we read when we get to the Bible is this idea that is that the Bible doesn't actually teach us not to be angry. Uh, it tells us that we have a responsibility when we are angry, okay? The anger is a legitimate biological response created by God for our good. For, you know, survival purposes, it's good that you get angry sometime. So the goal is not to eradicate anger from your life and never be angry again. The goal is to figure out when you get angry what do you do with that anger so that you don't sin and you honor God instead? Ephesians actually says this. It says, it says, in your anger, do not sin. It doesn't say don't be angry. In your anger, do not sin. There's a way to be angry and not to sin. Jesus apparently figured it out because Jesus was angry. And so Jesus is going to teach us also in the same way what to do with our anger so that we don't sin. And uh, the third thing, the problem with seeing the law versus Jesus, is that Jesus is actually stating a fact here. He's not giving a command. And so when you look at Jesus' statement where he says, but I say to you that anyone who is angry will be subject to judgment. That's not a command, okay? You look at the Greek. It's not a verb. Don't be angry. It's a participle. Jesus is saying, I tell you that being angry leads to judgment, okay? I think we know from experience that being angry does something to us, that it tears our soul up from the inside and destroys us, that it leads to judgment in our life. So what we know about anger is that it can have all sorts of health problems in our life. It can lead to high blood pressure. 
can lead to heart issues. It can lead towards all sorts of relational problems, of course. Uh, maybe think about the way, uh, if you've ever had a moment that you just keep ruminating on something that somebody did to you that really hurt you or harmed you in a very personal way, and you can't just get rid of like all the little ways that you feel like they've ruined your life. You just keep thinking and dwelling on those, and it gets your blood boiling. Uh, maybe sometimes you've sat around before and just thought about, oh, I wish I could have said that back to them, and I would have got them. You know, that would have been the perfect you know, moment to just drop a line and walk away. It would have been awesome. Or you just you sat around before just daydreaming about just hoping that somehow or some way that, that people are getting what they deserve. You know, those are sometimes dark moments, but we've all been there. Whether it's in little ways or it's in small ways, we've all dealt with this. And so what Jesus is saying here in this passage is that he doesn't want us to just not murder, right? He actually wants to, to free us and deliver us from anger as well, right? Because that is the root and the seed that sometimes eventually leads to anger, often not though, but it still has harmful, destructive consequences in our life. But this is what I really want to focus in here, is that the command from Jesus is not don't be angry, because we can't do that, right? We're going to get angry. So the command that Jesus is giving us is what to do when we get angry. And so instead of this framework of the law says this and Jesus says this, we've identified that has some problems. Um, I'm going to give you a threefold framework instead. Um, this comes from a New Testament scholar called, uh, named uh, Glenn Stassen. I think he comes up with this really helpful diagram that helps us think through what Jesus is doing here in this passage. And you're going to see that there are three subtitles in this graphic. Uh, the first one is what the law says, okay? And once again, the law says, you have heard it said, uh, do not, you know, commit murder, and anyone who murders is, is subject to judgment. But then he has the second category, and it's why we need something more. And so we're not to the solution yet. That's part three, okay? What Jesus is doing here when he says, I say to you, is he's telling us we need something more than the law because anger gets us caught in this vicious cycle that destroys us that it traps us, that we always just can't keep latching on to the hurt and harm that's been done to us. And in reality, we're just harming ourselves by holding on to that. And so just saying don't murder is not enough. We actually need to be delivered from the anger itself. We need something more. And then thirdly, he gets to uh, this idea of how to live in the kingdom. And that's what he's going to do in these next verses, uh, 23 and 26. Here's Jesus' solution to anger. He says, therefore, if you're offering a gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, and then come and offer your gift. And then he gives a second illustration. He says, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the, the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. And truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. So what Jesus is, is doing here is he's showing us how to handle our, our anger. And he gives us two examples. They're super relatable today, right? I'm sure it's only been two or three days since you were offering a gift at the altar, right? And there remembered that something, uh, your, your brother had something against you. Um, so maybe not so relatable to us today, but from the first century, the people would have been like, oh yeah, that happens to me all the time. Like I totally know what you're talking about. And so the point is not to get stuck up in the cultural example here, but the focus, right? And the focus is on reconciliation. 
is that if we go to, to worship God and, and then we realize that there's something that's wrong between you and I, there's anger, there's friction, there's tension in our relationship, that we need to stop worshiping, that we need to go be reconciled with that person and be right with them, and then come back and finish our offering to God. And so this is a way to deal with our anger in a very practical and tangible way. This is how we get healed from the anger in our life. Jesus gives us a practice that affects our insides, right? So it's outside in. Go do this practice. Go reconcile. And then when you do, your anger will start to subside and you'll be changed from the inside out. Outside in and inside out. So um, if you have ever been on social media and someone has made you really mad, and I know that's never happened before, right? Maybe like one or two of us, right? This happens all the time, that you get on social media and somebody says something from a different, you know, conviction and persuasion and you're just like, man, I don't, I don't know how people can believe stuff like that. They're just, just don't get it. They're so ignorant. And you just start to feel like in your heart, like this is frustrating to me, like that they just don't get it right. In that moment of anger right there, what, what would it look like for you if you asked that person to hang out and to actually have a conversation about this thing that's getting your blood boiling? I had a chance to do that this summer. It was really fun. I, um, there was somebody that I, I, see, I don't see eye to eye on in a lot of things that we kind of disagree on a lot of the, the issues of the day and the ways that people debate. And that person and I got to, to sit down together uh, and have a great conversation. We talked for like two, two and a half hours. And at first there was like this, this there's this anger and this tension of like, I want to be right and I want to show you you're wrong and I want to I win the argument and how could you believe that? And as you, if you really start to listen to somebody, if you try to actually hear what they're saying and understand why would they think that, what's the rationale, how did, how did they get to that place, what's led them here, and instead of trying to like find the, the, the moment to drop the hammer on them and be like, well, here's where you didn't see the statistic, and boom, you're out, I win. If instead you can actually say, hey, I, I want to know more, can you explain to me why you think this, or what would you think about this aspect of it, and you legitimately try to understand how this fits together for them in their life, a lot of times what you realize, and this is what happened for me, is that I began to have compassion for this person. I began to see that they weren't crazy, that they weren't just some lunatic, but that they actually had a great heart, that they wanted a lot of the same things that I wanted too. We just maybe had different ideas about how to get there, and that was okay, and then I could live with that. And all of a sudden, this anger that boils up so easily with people that we disagree with or who have harmed us, if we can sit down and look them in the eye and have a conversation, all of that starts to subside and go away. We start to actually love that person, and we find reconciliation with them. And so, if you have anger in your heart, uh, Jesus knows that the best way to keep people from being angry is not to tell them to stop being angry, all right? Try telling someone that's angry that and see how it goes, Say, hey, just stop being angry, okay? It's, to, it's reconciliation. It's to sit down and have a conversation and to become right with that person. And then the anger starts to subside in our heart and we begin to see that this person is a person who we can love. So here are the takeaways from this first example of, of anger. I want you to see kind of how this fits together and how going back to our two surprising claims, how this all um, fits together as a puzzle. So first of all, first takeaway is that 
Jesus pushes us beyond not murdering, right? That's what the law said, don't murder. That's a great start. I'd like for that rule to continue, all right? But there's more to it than that. There's got to be more, all right? And so Jesus takes it further. That's why he says, but now I say to you. He says, there's got to be more. And so number two, what he does is he equips us to identify anger as the real danger underneath the surface, lurking, ready to grab a hold of us. And so number three, what he does is he gives us a practice for how to deal with that anger, right? And it's this practice of of reconciliation. So that number four, here you go, when we pursue reconciliation, our righteousness will be greater than the Pharisees. Why? Because the Pharisees avoided murder. Good for them. But we redirected our anger and found peace with our enemy. So that's what Jesus means when he says, your righteousness will be greater. Is that the Pharisees stopped at the law that was good enough for them to check the box, but we can actually be transformed from the outside in and then from the inside out to be people of the kingdom who live an upside down way of life. Rather than avoiding the people we don't get along with, we sit down with them and get to know them and make friends. So let's look at the next passage, uh, which is very similar to this. Um, Jesus does it again. He says, um, you have heard, it sa- heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully with, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body and for your whole body to go into hell. So once again, Jesus does something very similar here. I'm going to show you this chart one more time. That He says, here's what the law says, don't commit adultery. But then he comes back and he says, here's why we need something more. Is that lust actually forms this vicious cycle. You don't just stop lusting. You don't just, if you've ever dealt with this before, you know that you can't just say, as of this moment, I will never lust again. I'm choosing to stop lust right now. That the world doesn't work like that. It's a vicious cycle. It may never lead to adultery, but it will lead to all kinds of harm in your life. And so Jesus gives us an actual physical practice to do, once again, to help the lust subside from our hearts. And it's a very drastic, dramatic example, right? He says, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It's it's better that way, you know, because you found out how to follow God in the process. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Obviously, these are hyperboles, right? Uh, All of us still have our eyes in our hands, as far as I can see. That's a good thing. I think Jesus wants that. But the the point here is is that if we are struggling with something, there's a temptation that has a deep root in our life. Man, we have to be serious about it. It's going to have to take big and drastic measures. We have to cut off the source from our life. Because if we don't, then we are just going to get stuck in this vicious cycle time and time again, And whether or not it ever leads to adultery, it's going to be killing us every single day in the process. And so Jesus says, here is this practice that can transform you from the inside out, but it starts from the outside in. So one more time, here are our takeaways when it comes to lust, is that Jesus pushes us beyond not committing adultery. Hey, that's great. We should keep that rule. But there's something more. And he equips us to identify lust as the real danger. In fact, he even gives us a practice for how to to stop lust. 
is that cutting off the source, finding out what has led me here. What are the steps that led me to this situation and this place of vulnerability? And when we cut off our source, our righteousness will be greater than the Pharisees because they avoid adultery, and good for them, but we avoided lust. And that's what Jesus wants from us. He wants the heart to be transformed from the inside out, but often it starts from the outside in. A tangible, physical practice that helps what's inside subside and go away. So here's how I would just uh, end and and wrap up sort of uh, our surprising claims from earlier. We, We read that surprising claim number one was that Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And we were like, wait a second, I thought Jesus came to do away with this works righteousness and whatever. But the solution to understanding this is that to love your neighbor is to fulfill the law. Okay? This is what Paul talks about actually in Romans 13. Look at these verses right here. He says, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments... You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. Whatever the command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. For love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And so when Jesus says, I have come to fulfill the law, what he says is it's not good enough just to not murder anymore. It's time to love your neighbor. And that anger that's in your heart, it's keeping you from loving your neighbor. And that, that lust that's in your heart, it's, it's keeping you from loving that person that you're lusting after. And so it's time to break beyond just completing and checking, checking the box. It's time to be made new and to love your neighbor. That's what Jesus means when he says he's come to fulfill the law. And surprising claim number two was this, is that unless our righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, we will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. And what we need to know is that Jesus will change us from the outside, inside, out, right? That's what he wants to do. He wants to make us the kind of people who fit his kingdom. C.S. Lewis has a great quote uh, that I think puts this in perspective. Uh, He says, the command, be ye perfect, and that's what Jesus gets to at the end of chapter 5, verse 48. We'll get there eventually, but you could substitute any of his commands in here, right? Um, The command, be ye perfect, is not idealistic gas, Nor is it a command to do the impossible, that he is going to make us into creatures that can obey that command. So the idea is that if Jesus gets a hold of you in your life, that you can't stay the same, that you are going to be transformed from the inside out. And all of a sudden, you're going to start to look like Jesus. All of a sudden, you're going to start to look like a person of the kingdom, that you won't look like that old way of life anymore. You will start to love your neighbor. And you're not going to be in the kingdom of heaven because you did any good deeds. It's because of the death of Christ for your sins. But those who are filled with this kingdom life of loving their neighbor, who have been transformed by Jesus, they are going to be found in the kingdom of heaven because they have let Jesus transform their life. He is going to make us into the kind of people that can obey that command. So final thing to think about. Imagine with me that you love eating donuts. Some of you don't have to imagine very hard, right? And you realize that it's becoming a problem, and you want to stop eating so many donuts. Uh, Maybe your solution would be to get a friend and say, hey, every time I reach for the donut box, would you just slap my hand like this? You know, and 
30 times a day, your friend is just watching and they slap your hand. You know, that would be a pretty effective way to stop eating donuts. So long as your, your friend is around, right, and has the time and attention. But inevitably, they're going to go somewhere else, right? See, the better way of, of, of stopping to eat donuts would be to learn to redirect your inner desires and remind yourself that there's something else you want more, that you want to be healthy or you want a long life. And all of a sudden, it becomes a choice that I can ch- I'm choosing between a donut and a healthy body. And when you put it like that, all of a sudden you go, yeah, you know what I mean? I, I can say no to the donut. I, c- I can learn and strengthen myself from the inside out to say no so my friend doesn't have to sit there and slap my hand all day. This is the same sort of thing that happens with anger and lust that we're talking about today, is that we have a choice that we're, we're brought to, that whenever we have that urge to fight to get the last word, drop the mic, we have a choice of getting the last word or loving our neighbor. Uh, that whenever there's lust in our heart, we, we have a choice between possessing that person in our mind or loving them as a son or a daughter of God. And so what Jesus wants us to see here is that, that we have this call to love our neighbor and that that's what helps us realize that we can say no to this over here if we realize that, is that really what we need to do is just, is just love the other person. And so uh, the idea that, that Jesus hands us today is that desires cannot just be changed through willpower, right? You can't just decide to stop liking donuts, that there has to be a bodily practice. You might start working out, you might start exercising, eating more vegetables, and all of those are bodily practices that are helping strengthen your desire, your ability to say no to the donut, right? Um, so with anger, there may be some similar things. It might be in your life that just like the example Jesus gave us, there's reconciliation you need to pursue with somebody. It might be that this week you need to do something radical. You need to drive to Dallas and sit down with this person and say, hey, we need to talk. Something is not right. And that the anger is not going to go away until you drive to Dallas and you have that conversation. So are you going to do it? Um, for some of us, there's lust in our heart, and we've been struggling with this perhaps for a long time. You know, that's not just going to go away by wishing it away. And maybe the practice some of us have to do is to tell a friend and be honest and say, look, I, this is a struggle for me. And I need somebody else to know about this so that you can help strengthen me and I can learn to say no together. And so the idea is that we get changed from the outside in, that we pursue a, a bodily, f- tangible, physical practice, like reconciliation, like including our roommate, that helps us over time let these inward desires subside down so that we can start to live an outward life of loving our neighbor. And so the question Jesus lives us today is, will, will we allow Jesus to change us from the outside in and then from the inside out?